worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Frequencies open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and there may be no regulation regarding the content of your Romulan rite of statement, but when you start reading the recipe for Grandma's plumique soup, that's about when they start warming up the disintegrator. I'm joined on this episode by Kevin Church. Kevin is an SEO content manager and specialist. He's also a writer and editor and was a former contributor for Comics Alliance. And he's written for a variety of comics and webcomics titles like Adventure Time, Bravest Warriors, Regular Show, She Died in Terabon, and The Rack. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Really glad to be here. Great to have you. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about The Enterprise Incident, the second episode of the third season of Star Trek The Original Series. Since their first appearance in Balance of Terror, the Romulans have captivated audiences with their mysterious yet noble ways. They're less boisterous than the Klingons, yet more passionate than the Vulcans. They're secretive yet ambitious, zealous but diplomatic. They have a reputation for being treacherous, but to the Romulan, secrecy is strength, and knowledge is the most powerful weapon with which to defend one's empire. And to give them credit, many of the races they encounter in the Alpha Quadrant can act just as rapaciously as those who march beneath the raptor's wings. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Um, well, so I was seven or eight years old. Uh, familiar, fa- familial, not familiar, familial uh, recollection is of this very. But um, it's a weird story. I had a fishbone that was stuck in my throat. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and I was stuck in front of a TV sipping on white vinegar because apparently that softens uh, a fishbone enough to where it either goes down or comes back up. All right. Uh, since it wasn't caught in my windpipe, we were just going to let it go into my stomach and because it was a fishbone, I guess, dissolve. Sure. Uh, I don't remember any tragedy after that. But anyway, so I'm sitting there and I'm flipping channels as one is wont to do at seven or eight. And this was in Arkansas in the eighties. So they were like, Four and a half channels, right? <laughs> uh, and um, and I came across the like opening, like the first minute of Arena, and that was it. It was immediately my favorite show, the best thing I'd ever seen. I got very, um, it became like a joke in my family how quickly, like I started demanding books. <laughs> I uh, I started I I made my dad buy me three VHS cassettes which is about a $35 outlay in the eighties. Yeah. So I could record the episodes on our giant Curtis Mathis VCR. Uh, <laughs> and I had a, I had two videotapes with four episodes each. Um, because I did them not on SLP, but on LP because SLP, the quality was kind of, kind of crap. And I, even as a kid, I was like, that's not good. So I record recorded them at the quality that we use when we take movies off HBO. 
And so, uh, but Arena was the first movie, a uh, first episode I saw, uh, and it started a lifelong. Here I am, thirty six or thirty seven years later, uh, just as uh, fascinated by classic Star Trek, just as much in love with the uh, the production stuff, with the with the what they did, what happened on set, what happened off set. Yeah, like I'm still discover I'm still discovering new stuff. I'm in a, in the middle of a um, considering getting rid of a, a lot of my collection, which I purchased for my Tumblr. They boldly went dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so hard because I've got so many great photos and stuff. But at the same time, I live in a small Brooklyn apartment, and so I'm having like Sophie's choice: <laughs> do I go without a place to put the shoes? And socks and underwear, right? Or do I get rid of all this Star Trek stuff that's just sitting in a flat file? But yes, I, uh, I absolutely uh, to this day am still a massive fan, fan of the original series, and I usually end up watching at least one episode a week of TOS. As far as those books and those uh, materials go, did you ever have any Star Trek comics? Oh, oh yes, I've actually just got a complete run of the first dc comic star trek series okay sent off to a binder in um a book binding service in omaha nebraska omaha bound um and they're custom binding me a set of the first i think it's 56 issues along with the movie specials and the annuals yeah of the the original dc comic star trek series from uh i think 82 or 83 i think it started in 82 right after Wrath of Khan came out and ran through until about a year and a half after Star Trek four. And then there was a, a Paramount enforced hiatus mm-hmm. for start before Star Trek five came out because Paramount wanted them to retool the book significantly. Um, wanted them to jettison all the supporting cast and wanted them to make it about Kirk, Spock, McCoy the the magnificent seven and that was it Hmm. they started enforcing crazy things like captain kirk could not have a romance that lasted longer than an issue things like that sure what were those the uh the creme de la creme of star trek comics uh i personally i do consider the um the dc comics run to be the best even though i have a real soft spot for idw's um later comics which actually fe- featured, you know, the cloaking device is a big story um, element. Yeah. Things like that. And um, even the, uh, uh, I really liked the series. It's, it didn't last very long, but these post Star Trek beyond boldly go comic they did. Right. Right. Felt like it was really close to like my ideal Star Trek comic, it evoked a lot of the feeling where, okay, so we're between movies, so we're just going to make things up, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. Right. <laughs> uh, and I kind of love that feel much more than kind of the regulated, well, we are, this is a season three episode, so uh, uh, this takes place between two season three episodes, so you can use Sulu and Chekhov, but you can't use Janice Rand. Right, yeah. Yeah, you can take off uh, Chekhov's head, but it's got to be back on by the end of the issue. Actually, I think that would be the best thing to do with most Star Trek comics is sever Chekhov's head in the first <laughs> panel 
and then redo the ending of Spock's brain on the last page. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, do it. How do you do it in one panel? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of new shows that have been announced uh, in the Star Trek universe and for CBS All Access. And I think the Picard show and the Giorgio show in particular interest me. Uh, and they specifically relate to what we're going to talk about today in that presumably the Picard show is going to feature the aftermath of the destruction of Romulus that we see in uh, Star Trek 2009. And the Giorgio show will feature Section 31 at work, uh, theoretically giving us the sort of cloak and dagger thrills that we get here in uh, the Enterprise incident. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Picard show, I actually have a lot of hope for, mm-hmm. even though I'm not a huge fan of Next Generation, which immediately people turned off their podcast player. So I'm talking <laughs> Goodbye, <about> everyone. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. I, I, but I really love the cast of Next Generation, and I really love the heart they bring to a lot of stuff. I, I personally think there's like 12 to 15 just absolutely magnificent episode of next generation yeah and the rest is all watchable but i don't really care to watch it that much Hmm. but i think with this show we've got we're at such a point in time politically and historically in the real world that the romulan um exodus and the romulans all finding their way in a new world really closely echoes the refugee crisis in Europe. Yeah. And I can definitely see Patrick Stewart bringing a certain amount of passion and interest to that. Yeah. And um, I personally, as somebody who really likes certain interpretations of the Romulans, see this as a real opportunity to kind of undo some of the, I'll say this, the blandening that happened to them on Next Generation Mm. and later. And the weirdening that happened in Star Trek uh, Nemesis. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they can just straight up say, all the Remans are dead now. There are no Nosferatu's. They could. There's yeah. There's one, and he's nuts. So he's going to be, you know, <laughs> big bad for the show, which I think would be, I would be okay with that if there was just like one Reman left. <laughs> just <laughs> the loneliest Reman, yeah. Really, really angry Reman. But I, I think. The Picard show really has an opportunity, and I get the feeling that they really want to see something that I think a lot of people have found in Discovery, which is Discovery is the first time we've had a protagonist-led Star Trek show, a a show with such a strong lead character. Yeah. And even the second season has kind of opened up a bit, and they've given us – I love you, Bruce Greenwood. You were probably the nicest celebrity I ever met in the flesh. (laughs) But Anson Mounts, Captain Pike, I would ride or die for him. Yeah, he's great. And if they decided they wanted to do an Enterprise prequel show, I might be down for that. Yeah, which is in the jumpsuit. <laughs> but I don't, want to, I don't want to go too far in advance. And the Giorgio show, like you say, I think it'll be really interesting to see how they resolve the fact that she is an empress from an alternate universe. Yeah. Who has eaten Kelpians and yeah. other sentient life forms. And we got some hints that she's working a bit in the most recent episodes of Discovery. Right. But that may be a, a too high a hurdle for a series to clear completely for my taste. Maybe. But you, 
You mentioning the political aspects of the uh, Picard show, uh, assuming they go that direction, that's really what attracts me as well. And if you apply the kind of uh, spy, cloak and dagger, political maneuvering things to that, I'm I'm on board. It's something like just a plain old Section 31 show. We're going to do things underhandedly when Picard could probably get it done, you know, with a speech. That's that's something I've been saying on for a while on this show that. Uh, something that concerns me about something like a Section 31 show or even putting espionage type stuff in Trek is that it's the sort of quote unquote wrong kind of Trek. You know, people love the high minded ideals of the Federation, the egalitarianism, the pacifism, but they also really like it when stuff blows up really good or when Cisco betrays and helps murder a Romulan senator. Or when Thomas Riker pulls off those fake sideburns. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's his Mission Impossible <laughs> moment. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I really, I'll give them a lot of credit for not even going to the full prosthesis just doing the sideburns um but yeah <laughs> fans really do have this i think that they have to feel like the action is earned yeah if you look at i count deep space nine it built up to the war yeah oh yeah yeah and and enterprise only fired phasers like one every three episodes in next generation Mm-hmm. Maybe, but and, and uh, well, maybe one and two, but half of those were warning or were warning shots, so they don't count. Um, whereas Kirk would be like, ah, well, I don't know, shoot whatever, whatever we got, I don't, I don't care, I don't <laughs> fire photons, whatever, at the giant green hand coming towards me. Right. Um, but I, I, I joke. I'm joking there. One of the one of the great things about watching new people watch TOS after you know starting with TNG is how much of TOS depends on a lot of the things that. I kind of mock TNG for, which are, oh, we got to have a meeting about that. Well, that's a TOS thing. <laughs> TNG will have, but TOS will generally only have one meeting per episode. TNG is happy to go, you know what, we're going to do three. Mm, let's that go back to the meeting do, room. Yeah. yeah it does do some really good things because it does give the supporting cast a bit of work to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> it rich relationships in a way that kind of carries over week to week, even though there's no plot connection to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like, I mean, one of my favorite things in TOS is I, is it Corbomite maneuver or whatever, where Uhura just looks so bored in a meeting. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, nobody ever looks bored on like, I want to watch an episode of TNG where Worf just falls asleep in a meeting. Right. Yeah. Well, they can't talk to the Doomsday Weapons, so she's got or, or to uh, Baylock or whatever, so she's got nothing to do this episode. But yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it also things- goes all the way back to the cage because there's a couple meetings in that one when Pike is down there, and then Number One is basically in charge of the ship, and they're like, "What? What do we do? Let's look at some more slides." Also, also speaking of Number One, Rebecca Romaine Stamos or Rebecca Romaine now, I guess she's no longer. Yes. My gosh. I, uh, my girlfriend was sitting next to me. She goes, who's she? And she wanted to know all about her, like instantly the second she showed up. She that's did great. such a great performance. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's, 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 as we talk about the Romulans and about espionage today, I just want to keep that sort of in mind. The fact that I think these things can, and obviously do exist in the world of Trek, but I always like it when our characters are sort of tempted by it or confront it and they just flatly refuse to stoop that low. I think TNG, I mean, that's what that was uh, Thomas Riker's whole arc. Yeah. Uh, they got to they got to have their cake and eat it, too, with him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. TOS for Kirk and Spock are heroes to do what is essentially, I mean, uh, it's I don't know. It's not a war crime, but it's an act of war. Mm-hmm. They commit an act of war. 
and then espionage, all for the sake of something that at the end of the episode they go, eh, that sequence only going to last a little while. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, I really love that the 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 way that that feels. It's such a great note uh, on DC Fontana's part there uh, that they end with a thing that kind of again goes back to the real world. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's it, uh, explicitly as we'll as we'll get into. Yeah. And that's that's one of those things I absolutely love. I mean, this is one of my favorite episodes, and it's a it's, it's a weird one to have one of my favorites. I think it's because it does so much different, but at the same time, it's still very Star Trek. It's got all my same Star Trek stuff. It's a lot like, even though it's it's kind of a troubled film in a lot of ways, Star Trek Into Darkness still has some really good bones bits, and that that's like that's like eighty percent of getting me into your Star Trek thing. It's have Give McCoy some good stuff. And I'm, good bone stuff. <laughs> bone stuff. Everybody else, they're, they're great. I like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about the original series episode, The Enterprise Incident, second episode of the third season of the original series. Uh, it first aired on September 27th of 1968. And as mentioned, it was written by DC Fontana, who is undoubtedly one of the faces on Mount Trekmore, without question. Uh, she's been spoken of many times previously on this show, and we'll relate a few interesting anecdotes about her involvement in this episode in just a little bit. It was directed by John Meredith Lucas, who we actually haven't talked much about on the show before. Uh, He replaced Gene Kuhn as producer of Star Trek after Kuhn left midway through the second season. Uh, He himself was then replaced by uh, Fred Freiberger for the show's third season. He also wrote the TOS episodes The Changeling, Patterns of Force, Ilan of Troyes, and the teleplay for That Which Survives. Uh, In addition to this episode, he also directed The Ultimate Computer and Elon of Troyes. He had been, apparently, (laughs) he'd been writing and directing for the Desilu series Mannix. And I guess that Gene Kuhn, when he worked in his office, would um, smoke. He used to smoke like these, like, gross cigarillos. Uh, And he would stand by his window in his office, and he would see Lucas heading out to his car from the sets of Mannix. And I guess one day he just sort of flagged him down and engaged him in small talk and found him to be kind of an interesting guy. And eventually he just asked him, hey, do you want to like write a Star Trek episode? And Lucas was apparently a big sci-fi fan. I'm not sure if he was uh, communicating that when they were t- small talking, uh, but he jumped at the chance. And there you go. I mean, sometimes it's who you know. Sometimes it's just walking to your car and one of the studio bosses has a crippling nicotine addiction and it all gets started for you in Star Trek. The the amount of goodwill I have towards Gene Kuhn is pretty endless, though. Mm-hmm. It's about like, how he navigated a, com- a a complex, to say the least, internal production system, and still managed to bring in outsiders with such with such great skill sets. Uh, he's yeah. a, a a writer and uh, that that was really great. But as a producer, he's among the among the the great heroes of Star Trek. He's one of the people that, I mean, the second season is, in my opinion, the strongest season. Yeah. Of, of, I'll say it, any Star Trek. I know, again, people are going to start deleting their podcast apps and start <laughs> throwing their phones into the river. But um, no, I mean, that second season of Star Trek, it's 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 like a greatest hits collection. It's all bangers. Yeah. And a lot of that is because of Gene Kuhn. Yeah. And I also like that he appreciated like the potential for whimsy and comedy in Star Trek. Like if you just let... Uh, Roddenberry or guys like uh, Harlan Ellison uh, just write all the scripts every week would be this morality tale that's in your face and it's very dark and Kuhn was like no it should be funny like this some of this stuff is ridiculous and he had such a great cast 
like you really see their chemistry yeah really start to click in that second season and yeah, it's like triples where i think i can't remember who but somebody involved in the in the show was like can shatner do comedy like he was a shakespeare guy you know he's you know he's doing this like can he be funny and it's like of course yeah he can be funny you just got to give him a chance and that show and that episode which of course we're not talking about you've already spoken We've about covered that yeah yeah, what I love about Trouble with Tribbles is it's actually you could tell that as a completely straight, serious story, and it'd be like, whoa, that's horrifying. Yeah. But instead, I mean, Shatner leans into his like Shatnerness, and and Kirk, who is just so fed up with uh, w- William Shallard's character, uh, uh, uh Niels Barris, yeah. Yeah, Barrett, he just really, like, you get to see Kirk go, I'm going to be the jerk they think I am. Right. And it's so much fun. And it's, it's again, uh, such great performances. And D. Kelly walking on the bridge, you say, we just got to stop feeding them. It's such a great, <laughs> great comedy beat. Ah, it could ah. be really dark if you switch out triples for kittens. And it's like these Klingons have poisoned thousands of kittens to death. I literally just read a Star Trek The Lost Years novel, A Flag Full of Stars, in which a Klingon has a kitten. Oh, really? And I piece of it aloud to my girlfriend, and she was delighted. <laughs> the start date for this episode is 5027.3, and your assignment, Kevin, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of the Enterprise incident. Kirk and Spock do a very, very bad thing for a moderately okay reason. <laughs> that is that is definitely a whimsical way to look at it. And under 25 words, you know, if the Romulans just told everyone, we're putting you to death, keep your statement uh, to 25 words or less, then I think that would probably be uh, better and more searchable for them too. Yeah, with, um, in the, um, the, again, this connects to this episode, in the uh, Diane Duane novel, The Romulan Way, mm. Coy takes the right of statement and turns it to an old-fashioned Southern filibuster, except he realized he doesn't have to talk about the subject at hand. <laughs> he just starts talking about his grandpa's chili recipe. Right, yeah. <laughs> he starts talking about all this Southern food stuff. And as a guy from Atlanta, I'm like, yeah, I, I could probably do that for a few hours. Give me a chance. Yeah. I'll talk to you about pimento cheese. I'm just a simple country doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could. I yeah, but that's one of those great. Uh, that's one of my favorite like Trek moments, and not just because it involves Doctor McCoy and Southern food and Romulans, but um, it's also really like the Romulans didn't think their thing through. Right. Like, it's like, I won't need that long. If I were Spock, I'd be like, okay, so here's the situation. And just start talking completely, like starting with like, so this is what happened on Vulcan since you guys left. And just really lean into it. Yeah. the Yeah. It's just that Romulans aren't as shameless, I guess. They wouldn't even imagine that somebody would uh, abuse yeah. something so solemn. So a human gets in there and they're like, if the photons didn't hit, you must have quit. It's like, oh, please. <laughs> Well, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. Uh, this is the last original series script to bear the name of DC Fontana. She would continue to c- contribute to the show on the scripts for That Which Survives and The Way to Eden. She was credited under her pseudonym, Michael Richards. And here is where those anecdotes I mentioned uh, come in. So strap in. Uh, Fontana was inspired to write this episode by a real-life event, the Pueblo Incident or the Pueblo Crisis, uh, which was happening at the time when the USS Pueblo, which was an environmental research 
search ship uh, that was actually spying on North Korea for Navy intelligence was captured by North Korea. It was on January 23rd of 1968. And it was a real disaster. Uh, one seaman was killed and uh, the other 83 members of the crew were captured and interrogated and tortured. And this went on for a year. And this was like a week before the Tet Offensive. So things are really starting to fall apart for the U.S. Uh, in that part of the world. But if you're a good TV writer, you say, hmm, that sounds like a good show idea. And she started working on a script where the Enterprise would be involved in a similar incident uh, with the Romulans. And the title of her story outline was originally Ears, uh, which is clever, if not on the lobe, because it references, of course, pointed ears, but also the idea of intelligence or listening in on someone. The original story pitch was different from the finished episode. It would originally have shown Ambassador Sarek as being on board and handling dip diplomatic negotiations with the Romulan commander, who was actually male in this version. Kirk and Spock, under threat of torture from the Romulans, appear to take suicide pills and die, though in reality they took a neuroparalyzer drug that would be similar to the one that McCoy gave Kirk in a mock time during Spock's Kunat Califi, which is definitely, I mean, we were talking about espionage and Cloak and Dagger before, that's definitely a darker sort of tone than a, a Trek episode usually would have gone to. Some, something about having somebody accidentally kill somebody else is fine, but having them actually take suicide pills is yeah i don't think that that would have really fit into track and it probably wouldn't have gotten past cbs's um, that's a good point too yeah practices guy uh i forget the name of the gentleman but he was actually really astute and offered a lot of really good story advice a lot of the time somebody and, somebody must have done it on something like um man from uncle or uh mission impossible though with all those spies somebody had to have a cyanide capsule yeah probably but i'm, I'm wondering if maybe they viewed Star Trek is not being as serious. Oh, yeah. Or as, uh, you know, uh, it depends on when it was airing, uh, what time slot it had, what percentage of the audience were kids. I mean, I'm sure that standards and practices. Well, this was season three, so it would have been um, like 10 o'clock on Fridays, I think. So, I mean, nobody was, nobody was watching anyway. Nobody was watching anyway. Well, people were watching. That's the great thing. We can, we... One of my favorite things about Star Trek is his modern demographics that existed. It would have had seven or eight seasons because oh, yeah, they, sure. they had people with people with free money and time watching. Yeah. The show. And that's the for advertisers. That's exactly what they want to hear. But, yeah, the um, the interesting thing uh, with this and with some other episodes from that season is seeing. uh where they loosened up a bit and where they didn't, where they uh, got a little broader. And a lot of that has to do, of course, with uh, Fred. Is it Freiburger? Freiburger? I think it's Freiburger. Oh, Freiburger, maybe. <laughs> yes. Uh, having, having kind of a different approach. But, uh, you know, it has to, it had to have been hit a point where NBC probably wasn't watching them quite as closely. But I don't think they ever would have, like, let somebody suicide pill. Yeah, it's intense. Um, after that happens, uh, their quote-unquote bodies are beamed back to the Enterprise, and then Kirk and McCoy would beam back to the Romulan ship disguised as Romulans to steal the cloaking device. There were con some concerns that this plot was maybe too similar to the actual real-life crisis that was going on. Uh, but, you know, um, it's ripped from the headlines. So uh, take that, Law & Order SVU. Uh, not everybody was satisfied with the script. Uh, Bob Justman noted that they should probably be making a Star Trek show and not a Mission Impossible show. Uh, and he's got a point, although there was, of course, a lot of um, 
kinship between the two series. And Nimoy would go on to play the Great Paris, of course, on Mission Impossible. And Sarek was axed from the script, both because Spock clearly could accomplish everything as this uh, different character, and they didn't want to lose any of the character's heat uh, as the Vulcan star of the show. Um, he was still very popular, even going into the third season, and they chose Spock's brain and this episode to lead off the third season because of how popular uh, he still was. Um, but Bob Justman also wasn't a huge fan of Kirk and McCoy having the Spock ears, um, not because he's a grump, although maybe he is a little bit, but he was always concerned about time and cost and the novelty of it, having them have Spock ears, um, which just wasn't novel enough to justify them spending extra time in the makeup chair. Uh, I'm getting a lot of this information actually from Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages, Volume 3 which is a great resource, and it has a lot of uh, the inner office memos about the development of this episode. 50 years from now, I don't know if we'll have internal CBS emails about what they want to do on Discovery <laughs> or like, you know, why they got rid of uh, Brian Fuller or, or things like that, but we've always got these inner office memos from the 50s and 60s that I, that I love to read. One of, those, uh, one of those memos involves uh, William Shatner borrowing hairpieces. <laughs> Yes, I know this one. Yeah, yeah. That's one of those that I, I absolutely love. I love, uh, and some of them are reproduced, I believe, in the uh, Justman Black book, Inside Star Trek. Yes. But there's those big uh, archives that Cushman, along with a few others, have had access to. Yeah. Uh, the That Roddenberry, I think, gave to a university in California, I want to say. They literally just have boxes and boxes. So it's one of those things where somebody is going to end up photocopying it all and making a giant book that I will buy. Just like the Star Wars archives book I just got. Oh, really? <laughs> That's a massive uh, Toshin book. And it's got memos and all this stuff that I thought I'd seen it all. No, no, I haven't seen it all. <laughs> There's always more to see. There's always more to it. see. <laughs> uh, Star Trek, Star Trek. I mean, think about it. They were making one-hour movies every week. Oh yeah, years. There's got to be more stuff in there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Justman thought that maybe a famous guest star like an Orson Welles or a Lee Marvin uh, would be worth putting the ears on for the novelty factor. But he reasoned that it wouldn't be worth the price because the average viewer who's watching this on a Friday night uh, probably wouldn't care all that much. Um, and it's funny because he was a brilliant TV producer, uh, but of course, he, he, there's no way he could have known that characters being altered seemingly with ease to look like other alien races would become a trope in the franchise uh, going forward. Um, and it was actually producer Fred Freiberger's, Freiberger's suggestion that the Romulan commander be female. And Fontana included that in her second draft, as well as the element that the Romulan commander had a kind of thing for Spock. And Justman himself pushed the idea that Spock would have to reciprocate or at least pretend to reciprocate uh, her advances for the purpose of the mi uh, mission uh, before becoming actually attracted to her. And he suggested the the scene at the end, the great scene at the end in the turbo lift, which is kind of the kiss off scene between the two of them. And he also suggested <laughs> the, the great addition, in my opinion, that Kirk not be directly involved in that. There's this great moment at the end of the episode where it's all said and done. They've got the Romulan commander on the bridge in her cocktail dress, and it's like, take her away. And he could just as easily go with, you know, he could t bring her down to the brig, but he kind of sees Spock and he's like, uh, Spock, why don't, why don't you take her? The subtext being, you've guys got, you, you've got a final conversation there to have something to work out. 
Yeah, that's a. Uh, I, I I like that. Uh, Kirk kind of steps aside for Spock in this episode a bit. He knows yeah. he, he knows his best friend had some heavy lifting to do. That's a a really nice grace note. Uh, and it's unusual considering, as we know by the third season, Shatner was counting lines and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, even he had to give way to a, a nice uh, a piece of writing there. Um, apparently, Fre- Freiberger liked the idea of Spock as a romantic, and he had his pet writer and third season story consultant, Arthur Singer, literally stop the script on its way to being duplicated and insert a love scene between Spock and the Romulan commander with Spock raining kisses on every square inch above her shoulder was a line from that script. I've also heard uh, that Roddenberry himself, who was pretty checked out at this point in the show, but uh, still did some customary rewrites. I've heard that he was the one who added the love scene in other sources, but I, uh, I trust Mark Cushman in this particular instance. Um, when Fant- Fontana got her copy of the script, she was not happy about that edition, and she let the higher-ups know. She wrote letters to both Freiberger and went straight to Roddenberry <laughs> that said, quote, Vulcans do not nuzzle, kiss, hug, or display any other form of human affection. The Vulcan outward sign of affection is expressed in a certain touching of the hands, as demonstrated in Journey to Babel, end quote. I love the fact that she went right to the boss, yeah. <laughs> and I also like the fact that she headed off the idea that like she realized she actually said in the letter that the fans would eat them alive if they violated the character, if they pushed things too far. So it's interesting that even in the late sixties, she's got an idea of what fandom is like, you know, and how obsessive they can get over their favorite characters. Yeah. Yeah. And 20 years later, she did, uh, she did the novel Vulcan's glory and she like established yeah, Vulcans can make sex on each other whenever they want. It's not just right. every seven years. It's just every seven years it gets real bad. And also, yes, Vulcans do have sex. They just do it differently. Or their version of foreplay and all that is very different. Right, yeah. They're not like completely abstemious until uh, the Ponfar you know, forces yeah. them to, to mate, yeah. She also made a great point in the letter, in her both of her letters, um, that some of the dialogue and scenes that were being cut would have fleshed out the situation. Um, there's a specific statement by Kirk that was actually cut that he was carrying out a spy mission on Federation orders. Like he says that uh, straightly. And instead, we just get a quick mention, like once he's waking up in sickbay, that this is all for, you know, like a secret mission for the Federation. And there's a whole plot line that suggests that the Klingons and Romulans are sharing technology which has to be kind of inferred and it's become this thing over 50 years of Trek where what exactly happened? You know, this is where the Klingons uh, get their cloak, uh, at least until we learn in discovery that they had a cloak for the sarcophagus ship, but this is where they get the advanced cloak that they use uh, for the rest of their time in Trek. So all of that could have used a better explanation uh, and it just got cut presumably for time and for flow. I mean, it could just be a line or two here or a line or two there. But that, that's the stuff that really does add up. I was uh, just reading a, an interview, as I want to do, uh, with Steven Soderbergh, and he talks about how you just have to be so brutal and respect the audience's time and your runtime uh, with these things. And things that, I mean, they weren't, people weren't really caring about it on a week-to-week basis with that show. Yeah. I mean, the audience, I mean, the, the fanzine people did. But the uh, but in fact, I mean, people that were watching it for the most part, I mean, my parents 
are a great example of this. They've probably seen most of the episodes by now with me, but they treat everyone like it's a brand new experience. Yeah, like, sure. The only one my mom remembers is Tribbles. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> is this the Tribble one? Yeah. Is this the Tribble one? Yeah. That's the only one she, 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 she remembers. But yeah, I mean, most part of the audience probably just didn't really care. No, they're like, oh, they got Klingon ships now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they made these uh, these models and they uh, spent a lot on them. So they wanted to show them off. And whether or not it made sense that uh, Romulans would have those ships, uh, who cares? We got to justify this cost. Yeah. Uh, Nimoy wasn't happy either. He was lobbying for changes uh, or to reverse some of the changes in the script. Um, He wrote a lengthy letter to Roddenberry complaining about Spock's oversex behavior. And with the episode that we eventually got, um, although it's a classic and uh, you and I like it a lot, uh, Freiberger wasn't thrilled with it. And he told Starlog magazine in an interview in 1980 that it was Fontana's unprofessional conduct that led to her leaving the series Uh, in season three. Uh, He had also said that he felt the story didn't work. He wanted to explore areas that Gene had built into the character of Spock, quote, about a Vulcan father and an Earth mother and other aspects of the character not germane to Fontana's script. Of course, (laughs) it just goes to show that uh, although a hard worker and probably a nice guy, he didn't necessarily know a lot about the show because Fontana clapped back in the uh, pages of Starlog uh, later that year, uh, and wow, I wish I had read Starlog in 1980. This is getting really spicy. Uh, Fontana explained that she had left her story editing job and arranged a contract with Roddenberry to provide three scripts for the third season, and she delivered them. And so leaving was all part of her contract. She had the option to do three more, but she didn't like how she's being rewritten. And so that's why she used her pseudonym. And this is where the famous story that I've heard about Arthur Singer, uh, the editor and uh, sort of head writer for the third season, comes in. I've told it before on our Tholian Web episode. Fontana pitched The Way to Eden uh, to him, which would feature Dr. McCoy's daughter being a part of the space hippie cult. And she was told by Singer that McCoy wasn't old enough to have a 21-year-old daughter. And that was pretty much it for her. Uh, clearly, she, or clearly, he didn't understand or hadn't read the show Bible and knew about the histories and the ages of the characters. And she didn't want to work for a show like that anymore. And the famous story in her words is that, uh, let's see, quote, in fact, the story editor singer uh some three months later wandered onto the set and asked our set decorator uh by the way what does that transporter thing do again uh, at which point most of the crew gave up caring end quote so a lot of times it's strange because you can have there's a show that happened recently oh uh the deadly class show on sci-fi um which i've only seen the pilot of but i really enjoyed was originally being um, written by another or show run by another guy. And I guess he got fired for some reason. And they brought a guy in who had worked on like Chicago Hope and like police procedural shows. And I was thinking, boy, I mean, is he going to get the material? Deadly Class is kind of weird. And it turned out great. And I think it's because if you are a good leader on a TV project, you understand the people that work for you probably know more than you do. And you're more of a delegator and you kind of let, especially if you're coming in midway through, you kind of let something continue to run well and you try not to upset it too much if you can. Yeah, with uh, with showrunners, and that's a term that has just entered the lexicon of nerds everywhere. They mm-hmm. seem to think a lot of them are grand game masters, which some of them are. Some of them very much are people with a distinct stamp on a show. Yeah. Most of them are project managers that are helping coordinate a writer's room, make sure that 
story themes and stuff are being, you know, taken care of well, making sure that actors are getting the time that they they deserve to be on screen or not, and are, are like juggling a dozen or a dozen, two dozen things at once. They're not just sitting there going, well, I'm an expert on Star Trek. I'll tell you how to make this Star Trek a yeah. Star Trek. Well, back to Freiberger's comments real quick. This is amazing. But what he said that he uh, wanted to, quote, explore the areas that uh, Gene had built into the character of Spock about a Vulcan father and an Earth mother, end quote. Uh, Fontana pointed out that, uh, quote, Freiberger is not and is still not aware of the fact that I wrote Journey to Babel, creating those two characters and their relationship and the effect on Spock's character, end quote. And of course, she even included Sarek in the story's initial outline. So Dorothy has receipts, yo. Don't don't come up against Dorothy. She's, she's going to get you there. Uh, speaking of continuity, it seems to me, and you've said that the second season is probably your favorite, and I agree too, um, a lot of bangers in that one. Uh, but definitely by the third season, they're really settling into, or at least maybe they're heavily flirting with, this idea of forging continuity. And as we just discussed, studios always see that as a barrier to accessibility. If a show is in syndication, it behooves the viewer to sit down and go, is this the Tribbles one? And then if it's not, you know, no big deal. But they're really starting to refer back to previous events. They've got recurring characters. Um, we're really starting to see that come out now. And as a comics professional, you know, I'm sure you're aware of publishers also being wary of the, that same thing. It seems like there's a new number one like every year or a line-wide reboot like every couple of years now. Yeah, it's one of those things where um, the only things that were heavily serialized in the 60s were soap operas. Yeah, and I, yeah. there's part of that too is, oh, that's television for women. <laughs> and, and even though we know women made Star Trek awesome they saved star trek after it was canceled absolutely uh the the fandom was so terrific and network execs and producers at the time were probably you know hesitant i would i i think that if they had carried over slight bits of continuity is definitely the way to go mm -hmm. uh when you've got a serialized show when you've got a non-serialized show that as we know did so well in syndication but, you know, people, I guess now that's actually really to Next Generation, uh, Next Generation's advantage. It's still running on BBC. Yeah. You know, every, everything, now everything's on streaming services on demand. Yeah. Be, uh, I'll be really curious to see if in like 20 years we see people going, so let me tell you about non-serialized storytelling. Right. <laughs> becoming like great innovators. Yeah. The opening uh, credits uh, or uh, theme would have a guy telling you what the show's about, and then we just start up, and it doesn't matter where you start. I yeah. told, uh, the old Gary Shandling show. Um, this is the theme to Gary's show. The opening <laughs> yeah. theme to Gary's show. This is the music that you hear as you watch the credits. I'm like, yes. <laughs> right. For every TV show. 100%. I know 100% what I'm in for. So anyway, that's the story of the script and how when DC Fontana says something isn't Star Trek, you should listen to her. This is the first on-screen appearance of the Klingon D7 battlecruiser uh, on TV, not in continuity, of course, uh, with Discovery. And the D7 was originally filmed for the episode Elan of Troyes, but since this episode aired first, it's the first time we see them, and it's the first time that we see them in Romulan hands. 
Uh, the D7 was, was designed by series art designer Matt Jeffries, and it was done at the behest of model company AMT. Um, of course, they had a deal with uh, AMT back then to make models uh, for the show, and they had had great success with their Enterprise model. And the company actually came to him and asked him for another ship. Uh, although the production of the show said, no, this is the third season. We don't have any money to produce a sh new ship model. So Jeffries designed it on his own time, and he received a tooling model from AMT to use on the show. And in the show, uh, this is before the remastered graphics, of course, uh, you can tell that it's technically not a full filming model as it has no internal lighting in the show like the Enterprise does. Uh, Jeffrey's scale drawings of the D7 appeared in Stephen Whitfield and Gene Roddenberry's reference book, The Making of Star Trek, before the episode had aired, which started the rumor that the new design had been commissioned by the studio, but it wasn't. It was done personally by Jeffrey's, which he told Star Trek magazine in 2002. And after the show was canceled, speaking of DC Fontana, it was DC Fontana herself who hand-delivered the original D7 model to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum as she was flying home to DC at the time, and she brought it with her in a plastic garbage bag, which is technically a cloaking device, I guess, for <laughs> an object. <laughs> I mentioned the remastering before. Uh, we haven't talked much about it on this show, uh, which, of course, uh, it started in 2006, involved cleaning up the pictures. Uh, and they actually created new effect sequences for the episodes. Uh, what do you think about the new remastered effects compared to the old show? The effects-wise, they vary wildly. Uh, In terms of quality or what they add to the episode? I think quality-wise is what I'm really referring to. Uh, okay. But what, well, I can talk about like episode-wise or what they bring story-wise. As far as quality, it's one of those things where they kind of look decent especially distance shots and everything like that but sometimes there's like a that close-up shot from between the nacelles on the enterprise and yeah. you're like, this is like a ps2 game <laughs> okay. this is this is this is is this star trek judgment rights for the playstation 2 did they make star trek judgment rights for the playstation 2 why am i not <laughs> playing that right now right <laughs> but, um but i uh they're there it's one of those things that now, since they've already remastered, since they've already got HD footage, they could theoretically do a re-remastering mm. uh, if they wanted to, because it's all now stored in HD. I, I think they did 4K scans of the original uh, film elements. So they could theoretically, if they ever wanted to do a 4K disc release of the show, which I don't think is going to be a thing. Yeah, uh, they could re-remaster the VFX. Uh, as far as story goes, there's there's like, you know, fixing it so phasers fire instead of photon torpedoes fire when Captain Kirk says fire phasers. Right. That's, that's that's a minor thing that I'm like, yeah, sure, it, it's not going to tick anyone off. The captain yeah. said fire the thing that you made sure the visual element was the right thing. But then there's things like the uh, suddenly there's the Romulan. Uh, bird of prey you know in the opening of this episode and always i'm like no no that ship's not there because i remember there. How it was originally yeah. on my busted up old vhs there yeah. was there was just some klingon there was just the klingon ships that's as far as a story change apparently they really did want to include a uh romulan bird of prey model um like the one in balance of terror for this episode but they, the prop wasn't available, and this is this is a story that I've told on the show before when I talked uh, to Andy Weir about Balance of Terror. Um, the, of course, legendary prop maker Wa Chang made so many props for the show, and he made that Bird of Prey model. 
Uh, he also made The Salt Vampire, The Communicators, and so on and so forth. But for whatever reason, and I still haven't found the reason for this, but he wasn't a member of the Prop Makers Union. And so the production had to ar- do an arrangement where they would buy props, quote unquote, off the shelf as if they were pre-existing props from Chang. But he was basically being commissioned to make them, which was not a, not OK with the union. And they found out somewhere in the middle of the second season and that arrangement was then off the table. And apparently there was a specific fight over the Bird of Prey prop. Um, he had built it at, you know, on commission, and the union ruled that he couldn't be paid for that work, but he could have the prop back. So he took the prop into his backyard, and he smashed it with a sledgehammer. So there was no more uh, Romulan Bird of Prey after that. That's, uh, that's certainly one way of doing the thing. Okay, so speaking of prop makers and visual effects people destroying uh, things, I get yeah. my Star Trek three story. Oh, so yeah, please. So Ken Ralston over uh, at ILM, he really disliked the refit version of the Enterprise, and he told uh, Cinefantastique that he was like, "I'm personally responsible for the ship." He actually um, despised the way the model was difficult to shoot. It was an eight foot long model, um, and they actually. Uh, built a new saucer section and he got to be the guy that drizzled acetone all over the thing and blow it up. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> he really wanted revenge on a terrible, really hard to shoot model. So, <laughs> Wa Chang was just starting a tradition of people that working on star Trek, burning and melting and kicking and, and whatever things that tick them off. And I know that I um, I was at a Trek convention, and there was a um, the uh, not the worker bee the shuttle pod from Star Trek the Motion Picture. Apparently, they bought three of them, and this one had a big kick hole in the side. <laughs> I said, "Is yeah, somebody just kicked it." <laughs> uh, but then he asked me for I think thirteen hundred dollars for it, and I was like, "No." <laughs> Star Trek prop. That's the kick discount. <laughs> the kick discount. Yeah. Uh, now, now, if you had footage of Robert Wise kicking it, then I'd be yes. I will. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, the prop prop makers are they are artists, of course, but they are a different kind of artist than I understand. And the fact that they can get so like guys like Craig Jean, the, the fact that they can, they can get so into it, and then almost. Always there's some point where it's like, well, now we blow the Borg cube up. And yeah. just thinking about the work that went into the Borg cube and they're like, okay. And then, well, now we're going to have the Borg in the episode, in the next episode. And they, well, I just got to build another Borg cube, I guess. And then they built a sphere. Well, what often happens a lot of the time uh, is they'll, they'll build the one that they blow up. They build the one to blow up. That's oh, personally. So it's less. theirs. They're going to put their own thing down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, well, uh, if the cloaking device in this episode looks familiar, it ought to. Uh, it's a combination of the Sargon globe from Return to Tomorrow and parts of Nomad from The Changeling. And I think this is where they were feeling the absence of Wa Chang. Um, you know, I look at the cloaking device and all I can think is that there's a ceiling lamp in the NBC commissary that's missing a, a shade or, or something like that. It's very sort of basic looking. Yeah, you could probably uh, make good money selling reproductions, though, on the <laughs> mid-century furniture market. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, Matt Jeffries designed a Romulan symbol for the episode. You can see it on the wall. It has a yellow hexagon in the center with three colored spokes coming out of it. 
This symbol never appears again in any Star Trek series or movie. Uh, the more familiar two-headed bird symbol seen later in TNG was designed by artist Monty Thrasher, as was the script of the Romulan language. Alexander Courage, uh, in a somewhat rare move, uh, composed the music for this episode. Um, he would return to the series for a final time for Plato's stepchildren later in this season. And he's welcome. The music in the ep this episode is great, and it does a lot of heavy lifting for the story. Uh, and I love how specifically uh, every time we get an exterior shot of the ships, you know, at every act break, it's accompanied by this increasingly higher sting, like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. it like keeps going up. Yeah, but the structure of this episode is just great. At the end of every act break, uh, at the, you know, at every act break, there's a, always a moment where you're like, wow, can they do that? I mean, right. especially if you're watching the show in 1967, 68, it's it, it really does feel, you know, it really does take its spy route seriously. Yeah, the um, the the ratcheting action, like yeah. it just gets higher and higher every time. Let's talk about the guest stars for the episode. And the first and most important is, of course, Joanne Linville as the Romulan commander um, or the rom-com for short. Uh, we should point out she is the first female starship commander depicted on screen in Trek. Uh, as an actress, she had a number of television roles in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. She also appeared in several feature films, uh, such as Scorpio and the 1976 version of A Star is Born. And she appeared on television on Dynasty and L.A. Law in the 80s. Her son, Chris Rydell, is an actor who appeared on Star Trek Enterprise. And her daughter, Amy, reprised her mother's role on an episode of Star Trek Continues. And you can see this on uh, YouTube, I think, right now. Uh, if you've seen the episode... It's called To Boldly Go. Uh, it's a great episode, and she looks so much like her mom. Like, it, it's uncanny. She looks exactly like her. She really does look amazing. Uh, and Linville's performance in this thing is just, oh, she, she I mean, I've got a thing for short, brunette, short, bossy brunettes. Okay. And the fact that she just owns, she actually puts on more clothes to do Spock. Right. 100% <laughs> comfortable in her skin. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely love, and that's one of the great things about this show, what, about this episode, is that William Ware Thice's design for the Romulan Commander, no notes back from the network. Hmm, okay. Like, Looks great. <laughs> nice. And he's like, okay, that's, 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 I guess Nailed that's it. more clothing than I put on most women on Star Trek. Right. <laughs> Uh, Linville herself participated in the fan audio drama Starship Excelsior for the Star Trek 50th anniversary special Tomorrow's Excelsior, uh, reprising her role as the Romulan commander. Uh, the Romulan commander is not given a name on screen, but various tie-in media has given her several names, including Thea Dion Charvan and Liviana Charvanek. And uh, Diane Duane's 1984 novel, My Enemy, My Ally, um, is the first of her uh, Riansu uh, series, and it establishes that she loses her name because of the events in this episode. And I think it introduces her uh, as Ail Turelaliu. I'm not sure how to say it. It's been a lot of time. It's Ail Turelaliu. Okay, I, tr I trust you. <laughs> I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about this. I love Ail. I. She's just one of those characters that I, I've always wanted. I've always like wanted them to go, you know what? That's a great idea for a character. Let's do something with that one. And I know they never will. But what Diane Duane did with the Romulans and what she did with the fallout from this incident was kind of the kind of thing that they could have done on TV if it had been serialized more at the time. But I absolutely love her cousin, uh, you know, 
the Romulan commander's cousin coming to the Enterprise crew and going, your sons of bitches, but you're my sons of bitches for this thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I really, I really love that. Like we're, we're in this together uh, because I say so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. The other guest star on the show uh, plays commander tall. Uh, I think of him as the uh, kind of Peter Capaldi looking Romulan dude. Uh, his name is Jack Donner. Uh, he's been an actor in film and TV since 1960. He's still going today. Uh, he'd go on to play the Vulcan priest in the Star Trek Enterprise episodes Home and Kirshara. Uh, later in life, Donner would found the Oxford Theater in Los Angeles, which is a playhouse and acting school. And his partner in that enterprise was actor Lee Delano, who played Kahlo in the second season episode A Piece of the Action. He's the guy that learns about Fizbin from Captain Kirk. Everybody, I think, loves the Romulans, um, and I think it's because they're they're mysterious and complex. But I think it's also because they're easily digestible. They're kind of deceptively complex. Like, what's the pitch? They're they're space Romans. Uh, they're obsessed with birds. They like knit fabrics and look cool in them. Um, and other than that, I'm not. I mean, at least definitely in the tie-in media, but not really on screen. I'm not sure there's a lot more there to them you know every time we end up learning more about them we we don't like the things that they add like you know they've got a slave race that lives on remus okay weird flex uh eric bana is is a is mining for them or whatever and it just seems like the the earliest incarnation of them is so simple and works you know mark lennard submarine movie great uh the defector you know that's pretty good um but everything they seem to add to them gets weird, which makes me a little worried for the Picard series. But I think we should know more about them at this point. They that next generation episode they showed up at the very end of uh, which was like going to be the first tease to the board. Was it was it the neutral zone? The neutral zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when they show up at the end, uh, that's great because you don't know anything. You're like, oh, oh Romulans. Uh, and that's such a great inning. And then they had to, you know, wait forever to like do more with the whole who's been raining destruction along the neutral zone bit because of the, yeah, that, <laughs> that whole storyline got so messed up and I don't know the whole story of it, but it just seems like they were going one way and then they ended up going a different way. And God knows that they were having all kinds of turnover in the writing staff, but that it just kind of gets forgotten. Yeah. Somebody was scooping up colonies and we think it was this but maybe it was that and i guess we just assume at the end it was the borg uh and oh god here they come for earth i guess we don't have time to think about it yeah um it's 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 just like the conspiracy bugs which are you know i absolutely love that terrible first season episode so much because it's got (laughs) some some verhoven slash cronenberg body horror it's got exploding heads it's got it's got um bugs going yeah we're gonna we're gonna take over your your world your your whole thing that's cool right and then they're like oh that didn't happen it's 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 one of those things that gets uh, what if what if that was the big bad for the picard show (laughs) (laughs) the meat spiders are back yeah Yeah, just like it took us a while to get here uh, I think Tracy Torme would love the fact that you compared him to uh, Paul Verhoeven and uh, David Cronenberg. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely. I mean, it's a high calling. It's a fun episode. Oh yeah, it's for sure. One of those. It's one of those ones that really is starting to push things in an interesting way. And of course, Roddenberry couldn't have that. No, <laughs> he was like, no, it, no, you made an interesting episode with the cliffhanger ending. No, we don't. We don't do stop that. that. 
Yeah, I love it. You sit down with a nice bowl of mealworms and just uh, check it out. Um, I uh, By the end of Nemesis, uh, I was kind of excited to see the Romulans perhaps become good guys. Um, they were never very fleshed out as bad guys. And you can only have their whole motivation be, you, you don't get to know anything about us. You know, we're secretive for so long. And making them sort of the new Vulcans, that is the the old Vulcans of Enterprise and TOS, where they're weird and they're separate from us and we're not sure where they're coming from. I thought that that had real potential. And maybe they'll go with that um, in the Picard series coming forward. I'd also like an explanation of where the forehead divot came from. <laughs> because it's only been like a couple of thousand years since they left Vulcan. And right. now you guys all got a forehead divot. Is there like a, a ceremony we should know about? Is it like a, is it like a bris? Do you get, <laughs> do you get your eyebrow furrows? Okay. <laughs> they get implants put in or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they fit into the uh, Cold War setting of the original show and also um, the TNG show. And when you need a cloak and dagger plot, uh, you can kind of pull them out. And that's what's happening in this episode. But like a lot of uh, swindle or heist episodes or plots or spy things, the plot of this episode is bananas. Like there are so many things that have to go exactly right. There's so many parts of this plot that there's no way that they could have anticipated um, this isn't like Mission Impossible where there's this finely crafted plot and something's going to go wrong, but Paris or Phelps or something is going to figure out some kind of um, improvisation. Like there are things that there are – there's no way that they could have predicted would have happened. Like they, yeah. they weren't immediately shot. That's probably the first thing that you would have – your plan's not going to work if they just kill you immediately. Uh, the fact that they exchange – uh, soldiers, they send two of their guys with uniforms in their size over. Like, that's really great. They buy uh, generally that Kirk is crazy, although part of the Romulan commander's insight is that she clearly knows that something's going on. She just doesn't know exactly what. And so when Kirk starts his bluster, she's basically like, don't, don't yell at me. I know what's going on here. You're not going to try to blame this on us. With, uh, with, all of the cloak and dagger stuff and how, like you say, it has to fit together perfectly. And there's never a moment of panic. There's never right. a moment. <laughs> it's like, all business as usual. Yeah. Like the mission impossible films do a great job of going, we've got this finely crafted plan. Oh crap. We're getting disavowed. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's never that in this episode. It's just like, are they really that good at planning that they're like, okay, so the scenario is, for scenario 36B is the two guys in the same size uniforms as me and Spock beam over. <laughs> oh, we're not, we're not shot immediately on site, by the way. <laughs> so yeah. they beam over. Uh, also, we're not going to tell Bones about this plan, even though he will need to do some plastic surgery real fast. Like yeah. Leonard Coy, <laughs> miracle worker. On-demand plastic surgery results done in under an hour. Right. He he gets he gets Kirk's ears in tip-top shape and out the door with no like there's no like no indication that he had had anything beyond well uh, I knew Kirk was acting crazy so I gave him the sleepy drug. <laughs> Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> there's no indication that he's going to know what the next stages are at any point. It's ah, bones, bones, miracle worker. Yeah, he's in the wrong business. He really, he really could have made a lot of money faith healing people. 
in, in space LA uh, doing plastic surgery. Of course, now um, with holograms like on Discovery, I guess the new looking like another race is just having like an image inducer type thing like Giorgio has. Or maybe that's just restricted uh, tech for Section 31. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're, that's definitely a thing that um, I do like that on Discovery, Pike was like, nah, tear those hol- they're holographic. Uh, yeah. flat things on the enterprise because you know what we need we need that bandwidth we need that space i was right. like thank you thank you for addressing that little minor nitpick i had <laughs> you so, can't get holograms so, in 4k I, it was and it was done in such a cranky dad doesn't want people to <laughs> yes to ship that way i was like yes you get it but yeah i guess also image inducers work as long as you're not getting punched and kicked out, I guess. <laughs> or making out with a Romulan commander. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. I, I, you know, well, maybe they close their eyes. They can close their eyes. They can be wrong. <laughs> sure. They don't notice your nose glitching when you kiss. The, this plan requires the Romulan commander to be female and ready to go. I mean, what if she was married? I mean, definitely dangling Leonard Nimoy as the honey trap. I mean, 99 times out of 100, that's going to work. But they don't know anything about this lady. Yeah, but also but also, maybe Spock was ready to go if it was a guy. Okay, well, you never know. He could, If he can detach himself, he can detach himself. That would have been, <laughs> you know what? We talk about the interracial kiss being progressive. Spock getting the third base of the Romulan male. That would have that would have blown their minds. Sure. <laughs> in the 60s. The way this episode comes out, or the way the plot comes out, it was designed to have uh, some deniability, but the way it resolves, there is none. They literally have a Romulan commander aboard their ship that they're going to drop off, and uh, who knows if she'll uh, ever see Romulus again. Uh, at least uh, in the continuity of the show. So is it really a success? Because this is basically an act of war. I can imagine just Sarek and like six other diplomats going, they did what? You're right. (laughs) My son did what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Get ready for some overtime. Yeah. The wallpaper, having to wallpaper. Or can we just (laughs) blow up one of their planets and make it look like an accident so they're real distracted right i wish we hadn't disbanded section 31 yeah or maybe section 31 took care of it somehow ah oh there's you go there's some plots for the upcoming Giorgio show yeah we're doing their work for them Giorgio michelle yo ages so gracefully they could set it 10 years in the future 15 years in the future she'd still look the same she's a magnificent woman no problem uh, like we said, uh, Linville is, is great in the episode, and I, I think it's clear why she's fondly remembered as a character. Um, she's got no time for Kirk's bluster, which often works on people, and she's just not ready. Uh, she's not going to take it. She's also ready to haul the Enterprise home in chains, which I think is great. Um, and one of the things that I think I think opinion is divided on is that I think some people see her as uh, and Spock as kindred spirits, and there might have really been something there. And other people see it as a strong female character who gets totally sidelined by a, a cute boy. Like, what do you think? I think that she, her conversations with Spock, especially about his place among humans, are things he's never been able to discuss before. Yeah. He may have opened himself up to her in a way that he never had before. 
Um, so he may have been emotionally vulnerable even as the plot unfolded the way it was supposed to unfold. I mean, mm. that's a very common thing with Jean Le Carre novels, which of course all started, you know, later than this, but they're all about the Cold War, is the emotional cost of doing spy work. Um, and that's an interesting thing, uh, an interesting, could have been an interesting thematic element to pursue later if it had been, if the show had been better serialized is, you know, Spock talking to Kirk about this. Uh, those are always the moments we love so much is when Spock is honest about his feelings. Uh, yeah, yeah. And if he had, if he had had. There's uh this side of paradise. Is that the one with the spores in the in the face? That's the one. Yep. And he's got that great sad like I was happy for a bit, and yeah. <laughs> such a great like I was I was honest for a little bit. It would be such a great beat for him to pursue, even yeah. if even if just like this side of paradise, the ship took precedence, the mission takes precedence because Spock is really good at his job. Yeah. And they're kind of switching roles in this. Like Spock gets to do what Kirk usually does and, and Kirk kind of gets to do what Spock does. And as far as pursuing romance with ulterior motives, this is what Kirk does every day. Like he's always pretending to seduce somebody, you know, for mission reasons. Uh, and, you know, every nine times out of 10, he's fine. But that 10th time, you know, he needs a little help to push Joan Collins in front of a bus or whatever needs to be done. So my, my sort of crackpot theory is that, you know, maybe the Romulan commander is kind of working him as well. You know, every James Bond movie has a scene where Bond finds out that the woman that he beds is actually a spy and neither of them really have feelings for each other. It's all maneuvering, you know, for their various uh, empires. So I like the idea that, sure, she's a little disappointed, but maybe it's kind of a put on. Like she's she's really as business minded as Spock is and she maybe gets a little too lost in the game. But if Spock had gone for it, the second they get back to Romulus, she's like, you know, calls up the Tal Shiar. She's like, OK, take him away. I mean, he would be a hell of a prize to bring back. Oh, certainly, yeah. Uh, yeah, I got, I got this guy that's been first officer or has served on the Federation flagship for at least at least seven or eight years that we know of. Uh, let's debrief the hell out of him. By which I mean, let's give him a Romulan forehead divot, and if yeah, he, right. <laughs> he will immediately start coughing up his secrets. Yeah. <laughs> We've got him here. Get the implants ready. Uh, you're home now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something that uh, I think is interesting uh, in this episode is that, uh, and you had mentioned before that you know what what ultimately is the point of all this, because uh, we never see the cloaking device ever again, and it's sort of lampshaded, uh, and also just the um, the futility of this sort of Cold War conflict is lampshaded at the end when they say military secrets are so fleeting, but. Everybody who has a cloaking device is still using them in the films uh, from here on and the, and the show from here on. So it's not like this has much of an effect. So my question is, like, where does all this tech go once the episode is over? There's so many episodes where they meet godlike aliens or a race that can put, you know, your face on the back of your head or you've got super speed or time travel. And they always talk about how. You know, we made a technological exchange or we sent some science vessels to talk with them about their stuff. But like next week, same old enterprise. Like we never see any of that stuff get integrated into into the show. Uh, with with that, I mean, you, you can make the argument that Section 31 gets it and gets Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> whatever. But you could also say maybe there's a Starfleet archival or Starfleet science archives. 
mean, there were those novels about the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. Right. There could be uh, Starfleet uh, Starfleet librarians, um, you know, <laughs> um, ontologists that are collecting and filing, and there's this giant warehouse museum. I mean, there's your there's your Star Trek four plot, guys. You know, let's let's get let's just say we're not going to make it with Hemsworth. Let's get Chris Pine back in, and here's the big box of Federation secrets that sure. he's got their hands on, and you get to play to all the nerd stuff by mentioning various new, cool Star Trek Kelvin Universe versions of things like that we all saw in the original series, Obelisks and Mr. Atos and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. That all comes back. I, I, that's, that's one of those things where they definitely uh, should pursue something with all this like great technology they bring. And uh, that happens on like all the series whenever they bring up technological things. Uh, Discovery has done a really good job with the spore drive issue, which, uh, you know, my girlfriend's like, why don't they use this in all the other shows? Especially that one where they're a long way away from home. And I'm like, oh, they're definitely going to cover it. And they they started really doing that really well in Enterprise. There's this groundbreaking piece of technology that they cannot use. Um, but both McCoy and Scotty are great in this episode, sort of being uh, on the outside of the plot and then being drawn in. And they're both a little tense because they're, something clearly is going on and they don't know what it is. McCoy just starts off, he's at condition pissed like the entire episode. And he's so sassy about, you know, not making house calls and that sort of thing. And then, of course, Scotty is uh, in command of uh, the ship while everybody's away. And the second they send those guys over, he's like, all right, grab them, throw them in jail. No, let's just throw them in jail. Yeah, just just chuck them in the brig. I mean, where was it? Were they going to go sit in the cafeteria? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> actually would have been great. A Romulan sitting there with a stack of those food cubes. Yeah. <laughs> and them with the finger and going, what? What don't you? I thought you guys ate real food. <laughs> And then Scotty goes, oh, I can make the computer make you a haggis. See, there, there you go. There's a whole thing. So many lost opportunities. If only we had a time machine to fix. <laughs> we we only eat sphere food. We don't eat cube food. Eat Spheres and tang. Yeah. Oh, and then, and now I'm wondering, are the are the cube foods just there for the tellerites? Maybe the tellerites, because we can we've established humans can get the food that they like. And Vulcans, you know, Spock's like eats a salad and plumique soup. Right. Made by uh nurse christine chapel but like maybe the maybe the cute foods for tellerites possibly yeah give those guys some pancakes and the war's over yeah <laughs> <laughs> well as we wrap up here is there anything that you uh still wanted to say about the episode that's been unsaid uh i really uh i'm a big fan of the way star trek the original series was shot and this episode's a real highlight the the use of colors oh yeah and the use of uh, dramatic framing. Uh, there's like one shot where the Romulan commander is pouring um, Spock's tang uh, and um, into uh, into a glass, and you see Spock kind of out of focus in the background, his fingertips. People, I'm like, ah, that's such a good um, uh, Jerry Fennerman, right? Right, Fennerman. He uh, he is one of the reasons I think I like TOS's look so much because it's so it's designed to maximize color television. Yeah. At the time, but it's also he like knew how to use dramatic framing and use colors to convey emotion 
in a way that really stands out. And it's something that uh, when we got to Next Generation, suddenly it looked like we were in a Hilton. Yeah, and the, the lighting fluctuated a lot on from early TOS to later TOS as well, but yeah. um, they definitely had something they wanted. And also the third season really suffered when uh, Finnerman was let go from the show around the time of uh, Thilly and Webb. You do definitely see um, a, a big change in the later episodes from the earlier ones in third season. The the way this episode looks reminds me a lot of Seijin Suzuki's films. He's a Japanese filmmaker. He made Tokyo Drifter, mm. and which is such a great luridly colored uh movie uh i i i kind of love it when people people crank up emotions through color and framing i know it's kind of frowned upon by a lot of serious people that want everything to look a certain way but or you're gonna do roma and it's black and white all black and white oh man roma though oh i saw it in the theater 70 millimeter it was so good okay good about it (laughs) I, but actually, I, I, I'm a photographer at whiskeyandfailure.com on occasion, and um, black and white is kind of like how I prefer it because it it, it features the subse- subject and it lets the mind open up a bit. Star Trek could never really go black and white, I don't think. Uh, they, I mean, they do it on Voyager a couple of times. Um, right. But yeah, Star Trek could never really be a black and white show. It's a It's a thing where color and dynamic camera work really can enliven uh, substandard stories and plots even because it it lets the actors get a little especially with lighting that it helps impart something for the actors let's talk my space dad can beat up your space dad who's your favorite captain and why james tiberius kirk uh he was the uh, the og no offense pike i love you sure. but you know kirk was the one to get the series order He was the one that dealt with, I think, the most interesting time for the Federation, the rapid expansion. Yeah. After uh, after the initial formation and the initial kind of uh, hardening up of the borders, he boldly went first and he led the way for everyone else. Uh, Archer, honestly, especially in later episodes, I actually kind of like what they were trying to do with that character because he started off as kind of a. Uh, I'll say this, a Bush conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a is prim, kind of stuck in his ways, but seeing him actually learn to become a good space diplomat. And Kirk could negotiate with you, or he could fight a giant lizard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good at either one. A lot of range. Picard did get his diehard in space moment. Yeah, <laughs> he, he he did get uh, he did get Star Trek First Contact, uh, so I I like him quite a lot. And again, I I've mentioned this a couple of times now. I really love the cast of TNG. I just really wish I liked the show more. I really like a lot of the characters, especially Worf, who is kind of I love making fun of Worf, even though I think he's great. I love making fun of Worf. Uh, but yes, uh, even though it's, oh man, but now I'm going to talk about Cisco. And now Cisco made hard choices and did hard things. Yeah. And Janeway was a probably, you know what? The thing is, Janeway is probably a really good example of what a Starfleet captain should be. Yeah, sure. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Leisure. Leisure. I am sure that Starfleet, as uh, as discussed by Diane Dwayne in her book, The Wounded Sky and My Enemy, My Ally, 
takes the recreation of its crew members very seriously because they work in high-stress environments. And a starship is away for multiple months at a time, and they can't have shore leave whenever they want. So I would like to be the guy that arranges movie night on the Enterprise. (laughs) I would like to be the guy who... When Sulu mentions, oh, you know, my favorite Beatles song is Obla Di, Obla Da, I spend an hour telling him that he's wrong with great love and affection for the man. <laughs> I set up Spock for, with, I, I make sure Spock's got a constant uh, variety of candles to light. I make sure that around the time of McCoy's birthday, Captain Kirk is reminded and that we make sure to pick up some bourbon. I I would love that to be my job, is to be the the guy that makes sure everybody else has a smooth voyage. And my day-to-day might be more stressful than they'd ever know, but that's not the point. I would want to be the person in charge of making sure that the starship was happy. Or I could be be the barber with a couple cards there, because that was a pretty easy gig. Yeah. Now I wonder if there was some uh, dark storyline that we never saw off screen for Isaac on the love boat. <laughs> like he's the guy making everybody happy, but he goes back to his cabin and it's like, oh, like his life is horrible. He makes Isaac happy, <laughs> but he just stares at the wall. But yes, I think that would be really, that would be really fun. Being a, being a, and also being like, hey, we got Andorian crew members. What do they like to do? Yeah. Making sure I've got a space for Andorian handball. Uh, you know, Tamarites need a mud pit. Well, let's see if we can get Scotty to put it together a mud pit. Yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, things like that. The perfect host. Well, Ensign Church, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? I am Kevin underscore Church on Twitter. Uh, my website is bokukevin.com, B-E-A-U-C-O-U-P, kevin.com, as in a lot of Kevin, mm. as I am a man who has a lot to give. Um, you can go, my Star Trek Tumblr is being updated very occasionally now, but it's at theyboldlywent.com. Okay. You do not need a Tumblr account to follow it. You can just scroll and scroll and scroll. Oh, my gosh. You'll have so many things to look at. <laughs> All right. Well, people should check that out. Thanks again for joining me. Oh, thank you. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.